1: Hello, and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father, how are you tonight? Very fine
0: time. Thank you. How
1: are you? Just the same, Father. Good to to see you there. Yes, you too. (coughs) Father, uh, any prayer requests before we dive into some questions tonight? Well, Tommy, mm-hmm.
0: there, there are some prayer requests, uh, but first of all, uh, I, I don't know if anybody uh, watching notices uh, the change that has come over you, but you're eight are older now, <laughs> and it's your birthday, yes, right? Sir. Congratulations Thank to you. you. very happy for you. And uh, Thank you. so I, I start by asking for prayers for you. Thank That's you, very ahead, Okay.
1: I can use them.
0: <laughs> and uh, I won't ask everyone to join in a rousing course of happy birthday, but... Uh, <laughs> I think an Our Father in Hail Mary and a glory be for you would be certainly in order. I'll take it. But uh, also, um, we do have some who are very ill. Uh, Please remember, well, Jim Tootie is recovering from a fall, which uh, did a lot of damage. You know, uh, he's 80-something years old, never broke a bone until just a couple weeks ago when he fell. And uh, he's done some serious damage to his shoulder and elbow. So please pray for Jim Tootie, a great man. uh, hard worker for our Lord and uh, for the church and also uh, please pray for David Hope Richter. Dr. Hope Richter has been quite ill for some time now and the doctors are having a very hard time uh, giving him some relief. So please pray for Dr. Hope Richter, a very fine man, a Catholic gentleman and uh, of course please pray for Paul Reilly right? and all the good things I say uh, apply to Paul too. He's a very fine Catholic gentleman. Severely injured, uh, was struck, actually struck by a truck when he was trying to help, help a stranded motorist. So uh, Paul uh, suffered severe injuries and uh, he was still in a life-and-death situation in critical care after a, a couple, few weeks now, I think. Uh, so Please do keep Paul and his family in your prayers. Uh, I think whatever, even Paul's survival, let alone what... Uh, you know, millimeter by millimeter uh, progress he's making is due to a lot of prayer that's being offered for him. So please continue it, intensify it. Then, of course, we have those who've just passed away, Sister Mary Joseph, you know, please keep Sister in your prayers, but as well as Sister Mary Dolores, Dolorosa too. And, uh, and, uh, we, we just have some wonderful sisters uh, uh, who are ill as well, but uh, uh, we, we, uh, we need to uh, keep them in our, in our prayers. We need to pray also for Sister, uh, well, I'm sorry, for um, Del Selway, who passed away some weeks ago, and also Danette Wainan, for sure. So I ask you to please uh, remember them all. And uh, we owe a lot of gratitude to many of these people who have set a good example for us for years. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. So well, there are many others, too, I should mention, <laughs> uh, Young Blaze and so many others, but uh, uh, I ask you to just uh, pray for those intentions who are committed to the priests to refer to you for prayer because uh, God knows exactly who they are. And uh, I, when I hear a request to pray for someone, I always uh, refer them to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and ask our Blessed Mother to enclose them in her Immaculate Heart. And as a loving mother, she is mindful of them all in heaven. And so uh, I can pray for them all by simply asking Our Lady to uh, commend them all to the sacred heart of Jesus, and she does, certainly most willingly.
1: Good. Very good. Thank you, Father. Thank you for that. Um, we wanted to uh, talk tonight, Father, a little bit about the uh, the role of the laity, the Catholic laity in the church. And uh, <clears throat> uh, it seems, Father, that there's been a kind of a, a growing emphasis on the role of the laity. Um, and in uh, the last century or so, maybe, maybe even longer, um, we see a lot of the... Um, a lot of the uh, the more recent popes talking about a lot about Catholic action, uh, about the role of the laity, mm. uh, about the scarcity of priests and the necessity of the, of the laity to assist their their uh, their priests in whatever capacity they can. Um, some of the Pope Pius X, Pope Pius XI, even wrote entire encyclicals <sighs> devoted to this this question. Um, Vatican II, uh, of course, definitely donated a. Uh, Significant amount of its time towards this this question of the role of the laity and the church. Um, so, Father, why um, do you think? I mean, it, it seems uh, that there is this kind of um, increased emphasis on the role of the laity of the church in these latter days. What do you think is, is causing that?
0: Well, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth actually uh, uh, proposed the idea didn't actually call it Catholic action at the time, I believe. Uh, probably the 13th was you uh, know Pope until 1903. Um, and, but he did encourage the laity to uh, go down into the arena and fight, you know, for the church and fight for the faith, uh, not by violent action, but by good example, really, and standing up for the truth, uh, the rights of Jesus Christ the King. And um, now, Pope the IX before him uh, actually had a, a program of having the Catholic people, in a sense, um, withdraw from the public forum. I don't know if he ever actually formalized that, but Pope Pius IX was faced with uh, very, very serious obstacles. Um, when he was elected in 1846, Uh, there was some hope by the Masons that he would be a champion of theirs. And uh, there was a lot of dread among the Catholic people because uh, Cardinal Mastai Ferretti, that was his family name, uh, had shown himself to be rather liberal in his thinking. And back in those days, that essentially meant anti-Catholic and anti-clerical. So um, just as there was rejoicing among the Masons, and the leftists, with the election of uh, Cardinal Mastafirelli, there was also a certain trepidation among the Catholics back in the mid-1840s. And, in fact, uh, when Pope Pius IX was elected, he didn't disappoint the Masons at first. Uh, he granted them two very great wishes of theirs. The Masons wanted uh, the Pope to actually turn over the civil government of the Papal States to a layman. And Pope Pius IX did that, and he he gave the governance of the Papal States to De Rossi. Uh, and he, they also wanted him to release all of the mercenary revolutionaries who had been trying to stir up civil war uh, within the Papal States, uh, because the Masons had a, a very serious program afoot to deprive the Pope of that the Papal States, his own country, because they wanted to deprive him of his liberty. Um, their efforts kind of (coughs) finally galvanized um, into the invasion of Rome during the First Vatican Council, about 1869-1870, when Rome was stormed and taken by the invading troops of Garibaldi, who was a very high placed mason. Um, uh, The idea of the masons was that if they could take away the Pope's um, uh, civil autonomy by taking away his own papal states, his own his own kingdom as it were on earth, that they could make him subject to the laws of a Masonic nation, a Masonic government that would restrict him and then finally even imprison him if he dared to violate the laws that the Masons would enact. Um, but in any case, um, Pope Pius IX, facing these things actually um, Saw it necessary for the Catholic people in Italy to uh, basically, in a sense, boycott that whole political process that was so so dominated by the Masons. Uh, Pope Leo XIII reversed course in that somewhat. Uh, the Braillemont, he uh, he wanted the uh, Catholic people to go down and get involved in all these things, and uh, actually take the lead in all these things. Uh, Pope Saint Pius the after him, then 1903. Uh, also certainly was a firm proponent of Catholic action, but he demanded that it be Catholic action, and he explained in Il Termo Proposito exactly what that means, and then Pius XI the after him. I think Popeyes the X, though, became a little bit wary of Catholic action when it got out of control. Uh, you know, if you read the document El Fermo Reposito of Pope Pius X, um, you find that he stressed that the uh, the action of the Catholic laity in the political field, the social field, must be subject to the direction of the clergy. Um, and this might well have been precipitated by the actual experience Pope St. Pius X had with the, the Sion in France, the Sion, which uh, led by a man named Charles Moran, actually at first showed great promise for Catholic action, but then went off the rails as they began to take it in a very strange, ecumenical, very non-Catholic direction. At first, Pope Pius X had, had praised the seal, but when it had um, then deviated from the faith and decided to just take its own course, thinking that they knew best, uh, he eventually had to condemn it. No, Uh, Pope Pius XI uh, renewed his support for Catholic action. But again, the Church was very clear on the necessity of it being uh, under the direction. Well, first of all, it had to be inspired by the faith. And uh, the faith had had to give the direction to all Catholic action. But it was ultimately the clergy and the hierarchy uh, that had to uh, direct that you know, the faith and how it should be applied in Catholic action. Um, Otherwise, it could go off the rails, as we found with Vatican II. And um, there was a certain tendency which was condemned here by the Vatican. They saw it in America, Americanism. And that was always a bit of a danger for Catholic action. The, the idea of Americanism, the separating what they call the active virtues from the so-called passive virtues, and letting the active virtues sort of run without the restraint of the so-called passive virtues. They considered the Americanists, considered humility, the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, for example, to be passive virtues suitable for weak souls. So that the religious who made those vows, well, they lived a life that had to be separated from the world because they just didn't have the uh, whatever it was, uh, um, to engage the world on its own terms and uh, to have the active virtues that were necessary to really enter into the arena, as Pope Leo XIII said, and uh, you know, meet the world head on, of course. That's not the Catholic understanding at all, and Pope Leo the Thirteenth had to address that, as Pope as Pope Pius X, after him had to address the errors that had crept into the Sion, Le Sion in France. So before him, Pope Leo the Thirteenth had to address the errors of modernism or uh, Americanism here in the United States, and they were certainly they were certainly uh, uh, related to each other. That is the idea that that there was almost like a separate concept of Catholicism that was necessary to get out into the world and engage the world and uh, sort of transform the world. These errors eventually led their way to Vatican II, were canonized by Vatican II. And uh, the damage, it's a matter of record what's happened. now you have uh, francis there who's condemning the whole idea of clericalism and promoting the idea of of laicism which is a complete inversion and perversion of the church's traditional teaching Um, that the laity and the church should work under the direction of the clergy and notably the hierarchy Mm -hmm. but uh, francis now says he's inverted the whole thing actually he's inverted the entire structure Literally, he said so. He says, now it's an inverted pyramid. But he's down here, or well, well the Pope, he said, should be down here. And, and all the, the, the good things should kind of filter down from the laity through the clergy, through the bishops to him, you know? And uh, so he has uh, literally and explicitly inverted the, the whole order of the church. Now he's got this synodic, synodality going, which is going to formalize it and canonize it mm-hmm. as the official structure of the new order. Right? So we saw this process setting in uh, with Catholic action. We saw these two ideas coming in with the, um, with the ab- abandonment of the faith, in the 1700s, in the Enlightenment, the uh, 1600s, you know, that whole... Period there, and going into the 1800s with the Industrial Revolution, and a great falling away from the faith that went on there, we saw the Pope's calling for the Catholic people to actually, um, you know, actually engage this and, and meet this with a, a, a very strong and and um, shall we say um, even um, intrepid practice of the faith the virtues of faith, hope, and charity in the way they live their Catholic lives in the world, and hopefully inspiring those around them with faith and hope and charity, like themselves, at the one hand. And on the other hand, we saw there growing up a real uh, laical, you might say, uh, laicism, Mm. which said, okay, we'll take it from here. The clergy has failed us. So now we're going to take the lead, and we're going to do it our way. Yeah. And uh, this, of course, has been disastrous.
1: Do you think, Father, is it possible that um, that any of these popes made an error? And it, it seems, did they were they wrong about this? Because it seems um, just um, that you could almost kind of, kind of trace a straight line in this trajectory where you have the like, Catholic laity, you're kind of, um, it seems they were exalting them, encouraging them to, uh, to participate more in, in social... Um, issues, uh, among other things, and then that kind of, I mean, it almost seems like you can just trace a straight line through today where, um, you know, you have the, the church that you described with, with Francis, where it's totally inverted, and now the laity is, is um, apparently at the top of the church. Um, was there a mistake by the by the, some of the earlier popes?
0: I don't think so. There were those who claimed that Pope Leo Thirteenth was kind of naive about this. I don't know. I mean, he's a brilliant man. I'm in I a position to... Judge that. Uh, I think it's a little presumptuous of people to to assume that. I think I think, well, I'm not the first to suggest this. Certainly, that there was a certain naivete that followed upon the death of Pope Pius X concerning modernism, because there was a reaction against his very determined resistance to modernism, as though you know Benedict the Fifteenth and others who came after Pius that. St. Pius X thought they went. Pius X went too far in opposing modernism. So there were those who said that uh, this was based upon a certain naivete. They didn't realize who they were dealing with. Uh, that Pope Pius X was exactly correct. He saw very clearly. And they should have actually um, accepted his wisdom and realized he knew what he was talking about. This is a very serious problem. It has to be opposed at all costs, at all levels. They didn't do that. So we see the modernists gaining more and more power in the church after the death of St. Pius X. Some would accuse Pablo XIII before him of having been somewhat naive with regard to entrusting the laity with this this kind of mission of apostolic works in the world. But I don't know about that. I know St. Pius X was on guard, and he knew the dangers, he knew the need for Catholic action. He knew the need for the Catholic laity to live their faith in the world, and uh, this was an essential uh, an essential element of the kingship of Christ, and that was what St. Pius X dedicated his pontificate to, um, the restoration to restore all things in Christ. And the laity have to be fully engaged in that effort. Uh, let's face it, I mean, unless the laity our Catholic laity are living their Catholic lives and setting that example, then people are not going to be moved to believe in our Lord, believe in the Catholic faith, and hope in Him and love Him. They have to see the results. They have to see the living, practical results of having the Catholic faith and the hope and the charity that it inspires. If they don't have those practical results among them, uh, that they can see, this actually does produce a very good benefit. I mean, our Lord time and time again in the gospel talk about the fruits, by their fruits you shall know them. And you have to see that in the way the Catholic laity live their lives. And if it, it's not for that, there's going to be a gap there. And people of the world who have a very weak faith or no faith at all, or a false faith, are not going to find their way. They're not going to find their way uh, through the context they have with the Catholic people. Um, and that's, that's going to be a real breakdown. You know, what is, the, what is the second mark of the church? Holiness. Holiness is the second mark of the church, right? How does the holiness of the church manifest itself?
1: Uh, and its members?
0: Well, it has to manifest itself in its members, yeah. I mean, we know the holiness of the church begins with Christ himself because the church is holy in its founder, right? And from its founder we have the holiness of the church in its doctrine and its moral teachings, right? So the church is holy in its in its very foundation, in the person of its founder in his teaching, okay? But the church has to be holy in her worship and the graces that she obtains for mankind, okay? But again, those are manifested in the lives of the faithful. And uh, all of that, you know, the holiness of the church in its founder, in its doctrines, in its, its worship, in its, uh, in its practice, and the effect of the souls of the faithful, it all comes down to what our Lord himself came to do to justify us from sin and sanctify our souls. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is what is so necessary, really, to show the, the, this cold, uh, faithless, hopeless, loveless world out there. Right, mm-hmm. is to see the actual practical power of the grace of God working in the human soul. That's why it's so essential for the laity. the The, the Catholic, truly Catholic, popes understood this, and uh, notice they always started with faith as being the essential thing, the absolute. Wholehearted belief in the in the truths of the Catholic faith, and uh, then applying those in hope and charity, not just this wishy-washy, nice, happy-go-lucky feeling of being a good scout in the world. And you know, even atheists can save their souls if they're nice people. Mm. That's Francis's teaching. That's the modernist teaching. Okay, the popes, the Catholic popes, had no illusions about that. Mm -hmm. That it has to begin. With the doctrines of the faith and the integrity of doctrines of faith, we cannot give away anything that Christ himself has given to us. We can't barter away, we can't bargain it away, we can't hide it out of embarrassment. We have to boldly represent our faith. That's where all the true Catholic popes started. They all knew that. But they were not naive insofar as they understood the dangers to the Catholic faithful because they realized that to be able to actually engage in in, a, in an apost- a kind of an apostolate of the laity to win souls for Christ, uh, that these these people had to be of a very high caliber in their faith. They had to be very well instructed, and they also had to be prepared and trained and formed. That's, you're familiar with the book <clears throat> The Soul of the Apostolate, right? That's right. And The Soul of the Apostolate was written precisely... For those who were going to engage in this Catholic action. And when you read the book, The Soul of the Apostle*, it shows you the formation that is necessary for a Catholic layman to effectively engage in this work. So by no means was the Church uh, itself naïve about this, but she realized there were certain dangers and uh, those who engaged deliberately, intentionally, willingly, wholeheartedly, in you know, winning souls for Christ by their own good example and by their good word, realized that their own virtue would be tested by the world and by the devil, and uh, that they would be also, uh, you know, fighting not against mere flesh and, and blood. They'd be fighting against principalities and powers, the powers of darkness in high places. We'd be doing everything that we could to stop them. The church was very, very intent on forming those those knights as it were Mm. you know knights around the cross Mm. it's just that um, when Vatican II you know in the period that led up to Vatican II um, the clergy I, I would say it wasn't so much the lady that failed I think it was the clergy that were being undermined and that really I think the laity failed, uh, they, the clergy themselves did not provide the leaderships, the strong, powerful Catholic leadership that the laity needed, and they basically just uh, often left the laity to done um, for themselves. A prime example, abortion, right? Yeah. In the 1960s, Vatican II came and went, didn't go, unfortunately, it left behind the wreckage, and the poison was there. By 1973, Roe versus Wade came in, right? And, um, and the bishops basically abdica- abdicated leadership. And the, uh, you find that going all the way, when I say the bishops, I'm talking about going all the way to Rome. I'm talking about all the way with Paul VI. Where was the thundering pronouncement of the truth? Where, where was the solid statement of the truth that all Catholics could rally around? And the Catholics found not only were they being undermined in their efforts, their Catholic efforts, but they found that even the clergy and the hierarchy who tried to stand up were being undermined by Rome. Paul VI, for example, ordering Archbishop Alboel to reinstate the 40 priests who defiantly insisted they would not follow Humanae Vitae. And uh, you know you know what happened. Uh, Archbishop Boyle of, of, of Washington, D.C. Um, reacted, responded to their open letter, the full-page ad they put. It was in the Washington Post, I forget. Saying they were not going to follow this direction, that artificial birth control is intrinsically evil. Um, and so the Arch- Archbishop of Boyle did what a Catholic bishop should do. He suspended them and said, you cannot teach this, you cannot function in my diocese. Yes, we expect the responsibility to feed you and house you, and so then, So you'll still draw a salary, but you cannot publicly represent the, church, the Catholic Church in this diocese as long as you are teaching something contrary um, to the Church's teaching. And these men, these 40 defiant clergymen, appealed to Paul VI, who was the author of the encyclical, they were defying. Mm-hmm. And they appealed to him, and he backed them and ordered Archbishop O'Boyle to reinstate them, even though they, they had announced publicly they were not going to follow Humaritae. And so this is the kind of thing the Catholic laity were seeing happening. We're talking about the 1960s. And so no wonder, uh, you know, the Catholic lady were being undermined, even as members of the hierarchy were being undermined by Rome of all. Thanks, by the vatican yeah. by the novus ordo the new order pontiffs
1: <clears throat> father what uh, what does catholic action mean precisely you used that term a lot does it does it necessarily um you know when you i think when you hear that word catholic action one might think of um you know necessarily these political type endeavors just kind of a very active apostolate but you mentioned that you know people just need these practical examples of faith hope and charity um does does catholic action necessarily entail Th- these more like political, active type things? Or can someone uh, who is just living, boldly living their, their Catholic faith, practicing uh, the virtues, um, but not necessarily engaging in any political activity or any kind of active apostolate, are they performing Catholic action? Or what is the definition? Well, I mean, of the Catholic
0: action, action ultimately is kind of, has to be motivated by a firm belief in the kingship of Jesus Christ, right? And the social doctrine of the church. Uh, ultimately, any Catholic action has to be directed to the, you know, drawing souls to our Lord for the justification from sin and the sanctification of the soul and finally everlasting life. That's where it all really has to be leading toward, motivated by that goal. Um, so you might say any Catholic action, be Catholic an action, has has to essentially mirror the purpose for which the Son of God became man, and lived his life on earth, died on the cross and rose from the dead, and sent his church out now um, to teach, govern, and sanctify mankind. Uh, That's very broad in saying that. There are very practical ramifications in that, though. Uh, A Catholic is bound, by virtue of his faith, to oppose evil, even as he is. Promoting the good, he has to oppose evil. And so if there are evil laws proposed in his nation, uh, in his state, in his city, he has to use whatever influence or power he's, he has to resist that and to correct those laws. And, uh, uh, you know, whether it be abortion or, you know, the divorce laws that or, would or destroy families, uh, uh, euthanasia, whatever it might be, laws promoting uh, perversions, you know, immoral perversions. Any Catholic worthy of the name has to be willing to stand up and to say, this is wrong, and I will do take whatever practical means I can in order to uh, resist this evil. And that would all be Catholic action. So, yeah, I mean, there are political consequences. Laws concerning Catholic, uh, laws concerning civil or civic action always involve moral questions remember uh, governments are given to mankind for the sake of justice and and are meant to secure human rights as god-given rights and when the civil laws of the country are contrary to justice and violate the uh, god-given rights then we have to uh, you know, draw upon our Catholic faith and stand up for that, and say, "No, this is what the Church teaches uh, in this matter of what is what is just here," and we have to stand for that, and we have to actually take action and give up our time and our our knowledge, our talent, our treasure, in order to to resist evil. Those are all very practical questions, you know. Mm-hmm. But as far as what Catholic action involves in principle, I, I mentioned il Fermo proposito. Of Pope St. Pius X. That encyclical it was dated June 11, 1905. So, I mean, you're looking at an encyclical that came out within the first two years of St. Pius X's uh, pontificate. You know, and he, remember, St. Pius X was the one who issued his first encyclical within two months of his election. He elected in August, by October, he was already issuing an encyclical, A Supremi in which he said that he was terrified to become the Pope at that time. And he made no, no secret of the fact, he actually said it out loud in the encyclical, that he feared the times foretold by St. Paul in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, were at hand. And that is the encyclical, uh, that is the, the um, letter of St. Paul, Second Thessalonians, and that is the chapter, chapter 2, that talks about the coming of the Antichrist. And St. P- Pius X said that we may well be facing those times right now. So you can see why he would be terrified to become the vicar of Christ on earth at a time like that. Right? So for St. Pius X, um, I think, thinking the way he did, that we may be facing uh, this time of the coming of the Antichrist, I think for him, the idea of Catholic action took on a special urgency. So when he wrote the encyclical Il Termo Proposito in June 11, 1905, he said some very powerful things. He actually wanted to define Catholic action. I'll read some of that, if you don't mind. He said, To restore all things in Christ has always been the Church's motto, and it is especially our own during these fearful moments through which we are now passing to restore all things not in any haphazard fashion, but in Christ. And the Apostle adds, both those in the heavens and those on earth. Ephesians chapter 1. To restore all things in Christ includes not only what properly pertains to the divine mission of the Church, namely leading souls to God, but also what we have already explained as flowing from that divine mission, namely Christian civilization, in each and every one of the elements composing it. Since we particularly dwell on this last part of the desired restoration, you clearly see venerable brethren. He's writing to the bishops, who are supposed then to uh, convey this message to the laity. He says, you see clearly, venerable brethren, the services rendered to the church by those chosen bands of Catholics who aim to unite all their forces in combating anti-Christian civilization by every just and lawful means. So he introduces the idea of combat Christian civilization against anti-Christian civilization. They use every means in repairing the serious disorders caused by it. They seek to restore Jesus Christ to the family, the school, and society by re-establishing the principle that human authority represents the authority of God. They take to heart the interests of the people, especially those of the working and agricultural classes, not only by inculcating in the hearts of everyone a true religious spirit, the only true pont- consolation, among the troubles of this life but also by endeavoring to dry their tears to alleviate their sufferings and to improve their economic condition by wise measures so he includes all these things in the actions of Catholics you know we're talking here about the corporal works of mercy right they strive in a word to make public laws conformable to justice and amend or suppress those which are not so Finally, they defend and support in a true Catholic spirit the rights of God in all things and the no less sacred rights of the Church. All these works, sustained and promoted chiefly by lay Catholics and whose form varies according to the needs of each country, constitute what is generally known by a distinctive and surely very noble name, Catholic Action. I repeat, all these works, sustained and promoted chiefly by lay Catholics, and whose form varies according to the needs of each country, constitute what is generally known by a distinctive and surely a very noble name, Catholic action. So these are works, or the action of Catholics. At all times, he says, it came down to the aid of the Church, and the Church has always cherished and blessed such help using it in many ways according to the exigencies of the age, okay? You might say it's a response, not a reaction, a response of the Catholics to the needs of the society they live in at that time. The need will always be faith, hope, charity, a knowledge of Christ, a love for Christ, and allegiance to Christ. This is what is absolutely essential. Um, he says, the... The Catholic action, therefore, has an effect on the temporal order, right? It can't be otherwise, um, because it's the temporal order that has risen up, as it were, to throw off the authority of Christ, to disown him, uh, to erase him, really. Uh, We see that with a great vengeance right now. Does the name... uh, um, you all know Harari. Ring a bell, Harari, right? Mm. He is the the mastermind of the World Economic Forum's uh, Great Reset. Harari, right? He has actually come right out. Now he's a Jewish atheist homosexual. Okay, but he is the theoretician for this whole effort uh, to impose communist atheism and absolute control over every single man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. He says now they have the technology to do that. But he made no bones about it. He came out and actually said, our purpose is to completely uh, uh, annihilate any remembrance of Jesus Christ, to purge the earth of any remembrance that Jesus Christ ever existed. He's come out and actually stated that. Now, this meets exactly... Saint, Pi, uh, rather, Saint John the Apostle's definition of the Antichrist, right? An Antichrist who denies that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, right? Made man, and Harari wants to actually purge the world of any not only belief in this but even memory that Jesus Christ ever existed. How diabolical can you get? That's what this world economic forum is all about, and those who support it are engaged actively, explicitly in the work of the Antichrist. This is the kind of thing that Catholic action has to address, has to deal with. And we're not going to let that happen. Insofar as, in us lies, we're not going to allow that to happen. We're not going to let mankind, we're not going to let the world economic forum and and this homosexual atheist Jewish guy uh, purge the world or drive the memory of Jesus Christ from the face of the earth. Um, that means we have to be involved, yes, in the temporal matters of the world, too. Uh, St. Pius X said, One cannot at all conceive of this Catholic action of the faithful independently from the counsel and higher guidance of the ecclesiastical authority. It is an essential distinction. Pope Saint Pius Twelfth, Pius following Pius Eleventh, kind of blurred this question, you know, but Pope the tenth was very definite that uh, without the actual guiding control, as it were, guidance of the hierarchy of the church, uh, Catholic action was all too prone to go off the rails. Why, why would that be so? Well, I mean, I think it stands to reason. I think it's common sense that you know when you when you have. Uh, when you have anyone, whether it be a Catholic layman or a priest or anyone who decides to say, well, I'm going to lead the charge, <clears throat> I am going to you know, stand up and oppose uh, what's going on, and I will go on the basis of the strength of my own faith and my own hope and my love for our Lord, and I will let that be my mainstay and my guide, unfortunately, becomes very subjective. And... Uh, <clears throat> You know how it is in the arts, you know, whenever you have any of the arts or in sciences. How does someone distinguish himself from all the rest? He comes up with something new, something different, right? <clears throat> and, uh, you know, if you're coming up with something something new and different that is good, and you discover something that is really beneficial and helpful, that's one thing. But if you're out there to distinguish yourself somehow, and... Uh, you, you find that the only way to do so is to deviate from what is already set and tried and true, to, to somehow produce something that everybody can say, oh, that's a novelty, you know? Uh, that's a great danger to every single one of us. Uh, no more that it could be given to you or me individually to say, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you just think about, you know, what doctrines you'd like and uh write your own catechism but that'd be no different essentially than saying to every you know individual catholic follow your own faith and your own heart in your catholic action that should be ultimately your guide follow your own conscience uh that is a formula for disaster that's not why jesus christ our lord gave us the hierarchy now you may be thinking (coughs) where where does that leave us today? Right, exactly. Right. That's I saw your so. face. Okay, <laughs> where does that leave us today? Who are we supposed to follow? Yeah. Well, the Church has been here for two thousand years. She's spoken very, very clearly through those two thousand years of what she expects of her Catholic laity uh, today, and that's where every single um, member of the Catholic clergy should should look. They should go to the, the gold mines, the diamond mines of Catholic teaching of the past, the traditional Catholic teaching, uh, the very traditional Catholic teaching which condemns modernism and condemns the, no, the New Order today. And we need to go there to the, to the teachings of the Church of the past to understand, practically speaking, what is the, the social reign of Jesus Christ the King, and how must it be applied, that's where we have to go. And uh, so, in doing that, we're actually subjecting ourselves to the Church's hierarchy. If we break from that, as they have done in the Novus Ordo, and taken their own path, because Francis says, now we knew different, now the the Spirit is taking us in a different direction, right? Uh, Then, again, those who follow him
1: are not following the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. But but Father, it seems that it would still be uh, very easy for a very simple layperson to be misled, even if they were referring to papal encyclicals or traditional Catholic teaching and solid, real, traditional Catholic sources. It seems they would still need a certain amount of leadership from the clergy, because they could still very easily maybe misinterpret uh, something, misunderstand mm-hmm. something, something that they read, maybe mm-hmm. misapply it to uh to, to well, something Tom, today so how exactly do,
0: You're, that's what has happened in the past at times
1: so how do we remedy that today when we have so few clergy um, how, what is what does Catholic action look like today
0: Catholic action still looks like the same thing as it, it was before it's just that the clergy themselves need to understand their responsibility in this they need to take something of a lead in this they really do I mean there's a reason why the So many of the bishops of the early days of the church died as martyrs. Why popes for the first so many hundred years died as martyrs. It was almost like a death sentence to be elected pope and to accept the papacy because they were willing to take that leadership. I'm afraid today there are timid souls who are unwilling to engage, as it were, uh, because it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of patience. Look, you know very well how easily how easily, we get off the track. And how easily, if we try to do something effective for the kingship of Christ, how easily we get turned aside by what? Petty things. I mean, the devil doesn't even have to work too hard. We carry with us all of the seeds of our own destruction, right? How easy it is to deviate and get off on tracks of egoism and like, you know, let's say, not just self-interest, but even, even people who are very dedicated to the faith and to Christ can kind of absolutize their own ideas and say, look, we have to do it this way, right? If we don't do it this way, it's going to fail. And somebody says, no, we don't have to do it that way. We have to do it this way. <laughs> and we absolutize this, you know? And how easy it is for people to get, get tied up in that, Right. And the devil can just actually sit back, relax, and fan himself in hell. <laughs> he can. <laughs> but, uh, but of course he's there. He, of course he, he won't do that because his malice drives him to drive us into those dead ends. You know, That's why Dom Chatt wrote the, uh, the, uh, the Soul of the Apostolate, precisely for that reason. Because he warned us, this is going to happen to you. Don't let it happen. Beware of this. This is what you have to be on the lookout for, right? So essentially, I mean, the, the, the program mapped out by the Church for Catholic Action, through Pope Leo XIII, St. Pius X, Pope Pius XI, Pope Pius Twelfth, that program uh, remains very much intact. We just need to study it, and we need to apply it. Um, but I, I think if the Catholic laity had strong leadership of the clergy, I think they'd be inclined to follow that strong leadership. Um, but again, I mean, you know, any member of the Catholic clergy is, is you know, is, is not infallible in his own right. So he has to hold very, very closely to this and uh, be very humble and uh, very willing to question himself are we on the right track? And, uh, you know, that's why Dom Saussure said look, if you're going to be engaged in Catholic action, you have to have a well-grounded prayer life. And the absolute staple um, has to be meditation. You have to give your mind and your heart in meditation every day of your life um, to go right back to headquarters, as it were, to go through God the Holy Ghost, to God the Son, to God the Father. And you have to present yourself there, meditation every day and beseech almighty god's mercy to keep you on track to enable you to know what is the right thing right and uh, and how to proceed we definitely need that uh so you know i I think I, i think we have the answer given to us already um that this truly catholic meditation as mapped out by the saints before us, and, and applying it in our own lives, shows us that what is essential, so that we do not uh, simply, uh, you know, be, be devoured by the roaring lion, you know, <laughs> Satan going out seeking someone to devour. Um, that's the only way we can possibly keep on track. Uh, is there any? Absolute guarantee? Well, not in terms of humanity, no. I mean, ultimately, the only real guarantee we have is our Lord, I will be with you all days, even at the consummation of the world, and the gates of hell will not prevail. And the kingship of Christ remains as firm and fixed as ever, whether or not anyone on earth acknowledges it, it is, the rights are there, and the power is there to enforce it, and it will be, Christ will assert his rights, you know, and all will be rewarded or punished accordingly. Uh, that we have, I mean, that's the guarantee, but there's no guarantee that you or I will be faithful. There's no guarantee that we'll stay on the right track. There's no guarantee that we will not be consumed by our own pride and, uh, and misled. All we can do is, you know, appeal to the grace of God day by day and uh, humbly ask for that.
1: Father, what would you say to a Catholic layman today who was maybe daunted by the prospect of, of Catholic action because this is such an enormous responsibility that they would be undertaking? You know, they would see so few clergy to, to guide them today, and even if they did um, you know, intend to, to go back to the, uh, the true traditional Catholic sources, papal encyclicals and other uh, traditional Catholic teachings, they would be very concerned that they might um, misinterpret or misunderstand them or um, maybe even fail to understand them completely. Um, It's such an enormous responsibility and enormous task. It could very easily make things worse, even if they did have the best of intentions. So what would you say to a Catholic layman who might be a bit daunted by that?
0: Well, I I think I would say what I believe our Lord himself would say and said, uh, remember, without me, you can do nothing. With me, you can do all things. And uh, again, I think our Lord would uh, say that by virtue of your baptism, and all the more by virtue of your confirmation, you have an obligation to me, right? And, uh, you know, in a sense, by virtue of confirmation, a person is made a, a knight, is is knighted by Christ, right? And um, they have an obligation and can't just say, ooh, you know, I might, I might, uh, I, I might mess this up so I, I just better go and kind of um uh what should i say um you know go play Wings or something and keep myself otherwise occupied but uh we, we have models for this already tom i mean you go back in sacred scripture you find you find god calling um jeremiah's, for example what was what was the prophet jeremiah's reaction right Jeremiah's reaction was, oh, I I, I can't talk, and oh, I'm not the man for the job, or... What was Moses' reaction? Well, I have this stutter, I, I wouldn't be a good representative, right? Did God accept those excuses? No. There were many times in the Old Testament when God called upon people to do these things, and they felt themselves totally inadequate, and that was one of the reasons why they were qualified, because they knew they were inadequate, right? I mean you know, King David knew as a young shepherd that he was not adequate of himself to face Goliath, but he was so outraged that this Philistine would insult the Lord God of Israel that he was determined to confront him because no one else would. And of all the people who were who would be chosen? I mean, how many warriors did Saul have? Look at Saul himself—he stood a head taller than anybody else in Israel, in his own army. But he wasn't going to face him. And of all the likely prospects to send out there into that field to face Goliath, David probably would have been the last last choice. You know, um, if it were a matter of picking up, you know, teams, he probably would have been the last picked. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, but God picked him, right, but because he knew his inadequacy, and his intentions were perfectly pure. He wanted to defend the honor of God if it cost him his life. He, that was not what was concerned him, but he had such confidence, yeah, that, and God inspired him with this, uh, to take those stones to go out and meet Goliath and to slay him. So Goliath mocked him, ridiculed him, cursed him before the Philistine's gods, and said he was going to give him, you know, his flesh to eat by the birds and all the rest. And David just said, well, you come to me with this and that and the other, thing. I come to you in the name of the Most High, you know. And um, that was it. That's why David was the one for the job, really. Right? So the first qualification is to recognize one's own inadequacy, um, because uh, it is only the strength of God that work, can work that way. Hey, listen, look at St. Paul, right? Uh, all the things he'd suffered. Then, on top of that, an angel of Satan came to buffet him, he said, right? And he didn't ask God to, like, save me from the shipwrecks and save me from the scourgings and save me from the being beaten with rods. But he asked God to take away this one thing, the, this angel of Satan sent to torment him. And God said no. He said strength is made perfect in weakness in infirmity, and uh, so what he was doing was he was perfecting St. Paul's strength and his strength in St. Paul by this infirmity. So this is exactly the kind of humility that is needed. It's the kind of the humility that enabled a maiden of Nazareth, of uh, the working class, as it were, right, um, to become the, the mother of God. Right? The Queen of Heaven. Um, build on humility. So anybody who wants to uh, wants to undertake this work um, has to, you know, study that, learn from those examples. Uh, yes, there are dangers there, but in every single one of these, there were dangers, right? And um, those dangers were obviated by the humility of those who undertook the work. And when God wants you to do that, he doesn't accept excuses. So, um, anyway, if there was ever a time on the face of the earth when it was necessary for those to answer that call, it it certainly is now. And the fact, if if somebody is doing this to glorify himself, he will fail miserably. If somebody really purifies his intention and says, well, I'm doing this for the honor and glory of God and he never loses sight of that. He can accomplish great things. Um, the uh, It's the proud who br- rashly and brashly rush forward, right? Like the fools who rush in. It's the humble who are very wary and have a great mistrust of self. But that mistrust of self is overcome by humility and generosity, where they want to be allowed to do something. And like the apostles, right? The very first time that Peter and John were beaten or scourged, they came away rejoicing that they were privileged to suffer something for our Lord. That's the kind of spirit that is necessary here. So anyway, I don't know if that helps at all, but I, I just think we, we can make excuses, um, and plenty there are plenty of excuses at hand, right? Um, but I don't know how uh, effective those excuses will be uh, when, if we try to explain to our Lord, well, you know, I, I don't know, I didn't trust me. And our Lord would say, well, no, that's not the problem. The problem is you didn't trust me. Yeah, uh, I think that's the issue.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you, Father. That's certainly a fascinating discussion. I think very important discussion, and I know that a lot more could be said. Well, actually, if you don't mind. Sure. Popeye the tenth, since you brought that up, uh,
0: in il Termo proposito, he did. He did have more to say about this, and uh, again, just one page uh, might be of interest here. Sure. I'd, I'd recommend that people look this up and actually read the entire encyclical themselves. That we must touch, venerable brethren, on another point of extreme importance, he says, namely the relation of all the works of Catholic action to ecclesiastical authority, which is what we were just talking about, right? If the teachings unfolded in the first part of this letter are thoughtfully considered, it will be readily seen that all those works which directly come to the aid of the spiritual and pastoral ministry of the church and which labor religiously for the good of souls must in every least thing be subordinated to the authority of the church and also to the authority of the bishops placed by the Holy Ghost to rule the church of God in the dioceses assigned to them. Moreover, the the other works which, as we have said, are primarily designed for the restoration and promotion of true Christian civilization, and which, as explained above, constitute Catholic action, by no means may be considered as independent of the counsel and direction of ecclesiastical authority, especially since they must all conform to the principles of Christian faith and morality." At the same time, it is impossible to imagine them as in opposition, more or less openly, to that same authority. Such works, however, by their very nature, should be directed with a reasonable degree of freedom, since responsible action is especially theirs in the temporal and economic affairs, as well as in those matters of public administration and public political life. These affairs are alien to the purely spiritual ministry. Since Catholics, on the other hand, are to raise always the banner of the church, by that very fact, they also raise... I'm sorry. Since Catholics, on the other hand, are to raise always the banner of Christ, by that very fact, they also raise the banner of the church. Thus it is no more than right that they receive it from the hands of the church that the Church guard its immaculate honor and that Catholics submit as docile, loving children to this maternal vigilance. And again, this does raise that serious question. Um, question raised by St. Pius X in this encyclical, question raised by Archbishop Lefebvre also during his lifetime and during his great uh, work for the restoration uh and that is how do we proceed in times of trial and times of uh, confusion? Um, it's not stated exactly here. I think Monsieur Lefebvre also did speak of that at least implicitly in the sense that his purpose was to always, understand everything in the light and judge everything in the light of Catholic tradition. And if you do that, you find that at every moment in the Church's existence, there was trouble, there was trial in this world. Um, Somewhere the Church was always being tried and always being persecuted. And there were areas of the Church that were subject to uh, the t- tyrannical dictators, persecutors, and so on. And in all of those times, the Church still called upon the faithful in those areas where the lines of communications were cut. When popes were imprisoned by a Napoleon, for example, or when bishops were uh, rounded up and imprisoned by a Stalin, right? Uh the Church still expected the Catholic faithful to live their Catholic lives and uh, even even more so to rise to the occasion. So I understand. People might ask, even as you did and even as I, I myself would, well, look at what's happened here. We see the modernist, uh, now, you know, not only leading the church uh, to perdition, as it were, leading Catholics, I should say, to perdition, trying to lead the church to perdition. They can't succeed. But you see this not only void of leadership, you see a leadership which is actually very much anti-Catholic and very destructive of the faith. We can't support that. Uh, We can't follow that. But where is the living voice to follow? Well, I, I think um, Monsieur Lefebvre, in a sense, pointed the way. What I, basically, what I just proposed to you is we have to um, steep ourselves in the teaching of the encyclicals of the popes who are very, very strong in the faith, in Catholic action and the need for the Catholic laity to engage. Uh, we have to educate ourselves in this we have to understand clearly what we're doing, we have to give ourselves to prayer, and we have to, uh, always acknowledging our own, our own frailty. We have to commend ourselves to God you know, and, and, and standing up for what is right, good. Will we make mistakes? Well, we certainly are prone to make those mistakes. Will we always be motivated by the purest of intentions in seeking God's glory? Yes. That's what we have to pledge ourselves to. That is the, the confidence we have, that God will even use our mistakes to accomplish his purposes. So we have, to, we have to. We have to move ahead. We have no choice. Retreat is not an option at this point.
1: Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Father. Thank you for being one of the uh, few clergy in the world today that we can look to for leadership. I know I certainly appreciate it. Heaven all help us, Tom. Uh,
0: there are others, too. Certainly, are trying as well. I, I'd like to see uh, the clergy, uh, to the extent the traditional Catholic clergy, unite th- their efforts uh, in these regards. Uh, even, even you know, despite the fact that we see some very sig- significant you know, differences, uh, we we need to uh, promote the praying of the rosary. And uh, we need to promote the traditional mass, of course. The traditional mass, you know, represents uh, everything that is directly contrary to um, the, you know, Marxism, Leninism, Socialism, Leftism, Wokeism. The traditional mass is the great obstacle in the way of all of those things because it represents um, the, the summit of, of, of the true worship of God through the Divine Son, became man, and gave his life for us on the cross. And uh, just, you know, Satan knows this, and that is why the traditional Mass will always be his primary target. And as I mentioned recently in a program, in Francis, for example, being a leftist and being a great leader in wokeism in the world, you might say that this is the religion that he's actually now embracing and promoting. Uh, he knows it too. He knows it too. And um, he wants to make the true mass go away. He wants to take it away from you and me. But curiously enough, it doesn't come across this way. But he wants to take it away from our Lord. He wants to take the traditional... Mass away from our Lord Jesus Christ and say to Him, not only to you and me, but to say to God, You can't have that anymore. I forbid you to have that because it doesn't represent my faith. And um, I think that's kind of a declaration on Francis's part that he doesn't believe in God, he doesn't believe in a Catholic God, he says. He doesn't believe in a Catholic God, which is his way of saying he doesn't believe as God, as taught, as he is represented by, taught by, known by the Catholic faith. He doesn't believe that. I think that has some very serious practical consequences. That's right. So, hold the faith, profess the faith, boldly profess the faith.
1: Amen.
0: God bless you, Father. Thank you, Tom. You too.
1: Thank you to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Do Catholics Believe? Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.